I'm about to study the incorruptible, inerrant Word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to His wisdom, and I rest my hopes on His grace. I will accept its rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in its promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be, I can do what it says I can do, and I can change what it says I can change as I trust in His grace and Spirit. I covenant with God that I am ready to learn, and I am ready to grow, and I am ready to change as I hide His Word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. Those leaving can step out now and go, and the rest of you be seated. Good morning, everyone. Before we begin our study this morning and uh, continue with the third message of our three-part series on the question, the easy Jesus, um, before we begin that, I want to just mention something that some of you may have already heard. Many of you may not have known, but uh, Ruth Hinckley, who's been one of our incredible greeters and care ministry members, she's often with a big smile hugging everybody back at the back door, uh, just, uh, oh, I don't know, a couple months ago, discovered that she had late-term cancer. And it was discovered very, very late, and there was nothing they could do. And uh, I, when I was with Ruth just a little while ago, uh, I was over to her house, and she said, now, Pastor, I've told you this, but she said, don't pray for my healing. I'm all excited about going to see Jesus. <laughs> And she was adamant. And if you know anything about Ruth, when Ruth gets adamant, you know, and she was a saint. And uh, she's one of those kind of people that pastors always say, if I was allowed to clone, I'd clone a hundred of her. But she, she was incredible. But she went home to be, to see Jesus yesterday. And uh, so, and she was where she wanted to be, at her home. And uh, so uh, we'll give you more information as uh, it comes out, and we've been trying to communicate with the family. It's a little hard to, uh, to get a hold of them, a lot of things going on for them. So just keep the Hinckley family in your prayers, and, uh, but we're going to miss Ruth. She was a vital part of this church family, and she loved so many people, and we're going to miss her hugs and her smiles, but uh, we're so grateful we know where she's at, and there's no doubt Jesus came to greet her. Uh, because she was so full of his love. So, uh, this morning we're going to continue with this series we've been in called, uh, it's actually a question, Easy Jesus. And you may remember that uh, in this series I <laughs> resurrected this old promotional device. Some of, some of the kids were too young to even remember it, but... Uh, you know, one of the, uh, I think it was Staples that had this, you know, and it was called the, the easy button. That was easy. You know, some of you may remember it. And it was quite popular for a while. People were going around and, and I don't know who got this for me, but somebody got me an easy button. So I, I kept it and it was in my office. And I thought, you know, this makes a, a good uh, illustration. But the point is, is that this easy button is something that... Uh, uh, some uh, creative, clever young Christian lad got an idea when this was very popular, and uh, he came up with, if you remember from the easy button, he came up with this, a witnessing t-shirt, and I've shown it to you about every week, you know, the Jesus button, life's problems, one solution, it's just that easy. And of course, in many respects, that is true. Jesus is the solution to life. Don't ever doubt that. And it is just that easy in that sense. But on, in another sense, people can, can, can get the wrong idea. Uh, Jesus is not a button you push. He's a relationship that you establish. He's a person that you receive. And receiving him requires everything. And we're going to see why. And we've talked about that uh, several times. We're going to rehearse that a little bit and keep going this morning. And uh, you may recall we did ask ourselves, is this true? And uh, for example, we talked about the fact that it was Jesus who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But remember, the yoke he was talking about was the yokes that the men used to carry loads between villages. And they were made, as, if you had a good master, he made you a good yoke that fit 
and it uh, was easy on your shoulders, and the bad masters didn't do that. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Why? It's custom made for you, and my burden is light. It'll be just the right size. So, uh, Jesus wasn't saying that, you know, you, you push the Jesus button, and all your life problems are solved, and you just get to kind of, you know, recline on the couch and, and, uh, and just have an easy life. What he was saying is, I'm going to put you to work, but I have a good yoke for you that'll enable you to work well, and in your, the, my work will give you uh, your life meaning because it'll be exactly the kind of thing you should be doing, and it will be just right for you. A lot of people today have this idea, and it seems like this so-called, I don't know, pandemic has gotten a lot of Christians to the idea that, you know, they can now just have, you know, couch potato worship services, and that's enough. But I've got news for you. It's more than that to be a follower of Jesus. It means connecting with his body and being an active part of his body. And so this morning, we're going to remind ourselves of the territory we've covered just a little bit. And uh, last, uh, the last two weeks, we've explored certain questions within the context of Jesus' call to us to be his disciple. You recall, we started off talking about Jesus walking into the fishing village of Andrew and Peter and then James and John and saying to them, come, follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish for people. And that call was an incredible call that's stunned them because no famous rabbi, and Jesus was the most famous rabbi in Israel now, he was drawing crowds of tens of thousands, no rabbi would go and ask someone to be his disciple. You had to come hat in hand begging to be his disciple if you were a 4.0 student and qualified, and evidently these boys hadn't made it in rabbi school that well, so they went back into the trades, the fishing trades. But Jesus, the great famous rabbi, comes into their village and gives them an invitation and humbles himself and says, come, follow me, and I'll teach you how to fish for people. It was shocking to them. And we're told immediately they left their nets and their boats and they followed him. And so in the context of that, we've been asking ourselves, you know, what is our identity within the terms of this call? And so there are three questions that we're going, that we're entertaining in this series, and we've already covered two of them. Now, in the first message, our message was, who are you? within the terms of this call to be a disciple of Jesus. Who are you? And we learned that Jesus wants to give you an identity, not only in the future forever, but he wants to give you an identity here and now as his follower, as someone who lives life his way. And so that's who you are. You are to be identified with him. In fact, and then in message two, uh, uh, we talked about the fact that uh, the question is, is, who are you in message one? And I, I want to just take a moment and talk to you about this idea of who are you for a second. Because I don't think many Christians understand that in eternity, God is going to give you a new name that you don't even know what it is yet. I don't know what my name is. You don't know what your name is. In fact, in Revelation 2.17 when he's talking about the overcomers in the churches, he says, to those who have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who over, to the ones who over, to those who overcome, I'm supposed to say overcome, that S isn't going to be there. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give to them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Interesting. That name will be known only to you and to God. That will be your intimate relationship with God. It will probably be some way that you are created to reflect some aspect of God that no one else can. And that's why we will love each other so much because each of us will have something to share about God that is unique. But the point is, God is going to give you your identity, not only here, but for all eternity. And that's the identity that we have within the question, who are you as a disciple of Jesus? In other words, Jesus is going to reveal to you for the first time in your life who you really are and who he created you to be from the foundations of the world. Our, our second question uh, was not, not who are you, but within the context of identity, whose are you? Because that de really determines who you are. And we examined our rabbi-disciple relationship with Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus. 
and how we are to be willingly absorbed into his identity by conforming to him, by being found in the way with him. That's what it means to follow him, to be found in the way with him. Wherever he is, you're, you're going there with him. However he's doing it, you're doing it the same way. Whatever he's teaching, you're willing to teach the same thing because you are his and he has claimed you as his own. And today we're going to take a third step in this quest for unpacking the meaning of our identity as disciples of Jesus within this call. And that question uh, in message three is simply this, where are you? And this has to do with the way. Uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to follow him and do things his way. And you have to be found in the way with him. We're going to unpack what that means a little bit. But the question today is, where are you? One of Jesus' most profound and most important and probably his best known, one of his best known statements about himself is found in John 14, 6. And here's what he said about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, a lot of people stop there and don't like the next part of this, but Jesus said this as well. And if the first part is true, this part is true too. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when Jesus says that he's the truth and the life, which is this part, we, we do okay with that as Christians. Uh, we understand that he's the truth because he's the creator. He's the source of reality. He's the one who sustains reality. He's the one who spoke us into existence and maintains us in existence. He's the one who defines the difference between error and what is factual. He is indeed God and he is truth. He is the source of all truth. And he is the one who tells us about the dilemma of sin and death. He tells us the truth about what he's done to solve that dilemma. And when we put our trust in him, he solves that problem for us because he is the truth about how to be free from sin and death. And when Jesus says he is the life, some of us have come to understand that he didn't use the word bios there. He's not talking about physical life. He used the word zoe. And in the Greek, in the Bible, this is often used to refer to God's uncreated life that actually bestows life. And so Jesus is saying, I am the creator who bestows life and sustains life. And I have come that you might have life. And as he said on one occasion, have it abundantly to the full. I don't want you to have just a mediocre life. I want you to have the life I designed you to have forever and ever. And so when we talk about Jesus being the life, we understand that. He is the creator. He is Zoe. He is the source of life. And when I give my life to him, he's going to kill what I am and resurrect me to be something much better. Because in him, I find resurrection, indestructible life, which will enable me to live with him forever and ever. However, but when Jesus says that he is the way, and that's what he started with, I am the way, we kind of shallow out on that one. Uh, we think only in one direction. We say, oh, well, he's the way to heaven. Well, of course he is. Obviously, that's true. That's stated all through Scripture. And he made it pretty clear. You can't come to the Father. You can't come home to the kingdom. You can't get to heaven except through me. That's what he means by no one can come to the Father except through me. And so, yes, he is the way to heaven, but he is so much more, and that he meant so much more when he said, I am the way. He is also the way here on earth. He is the way we are to live now, and he teaches us to follow his way rather than our own way or the way of the world or the way of some other ideas or thoughts or philosophies or religion, we are to follow the way of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the way to live life. In fact, I can't list it all, but in a sense, we could say that Jesus is the way to live, do money, do family, do careers, to handle bosses. Anybody got a boss you need to handle? To handle employees. Anybody got employees you got to handle? Uh, to value people. He's the way to forgive enemies. Remember, he commands us to do that and then says he'll give us the grace to do it, to help the poor, to do justice in the world, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I find it interesting. Our world is confused and uh, very, very uh, supposedly passionate about certain things. Hear a lot about social justice today. The truth is 
is that this, most of what masquerades as social justice isn't just. It's very unjust. And what it does is divide people and it labels them guilty or not guilty according to groups and has nothing to do with personal responsibility and character, which is really where justice lies, holding people responsible for who they are and what they do. And so when you label people according to groups, you're really just prejudiced and, you're, and it's a very unjust system. And so everybody's guilty. If you belong to this group, you're just guilty. You're an oppressor. And if you belong to this group, well, you're oppressed. And so this uh, Marxist cultural, uh, cultural Marxism is invading our culture. And it's not just. Jesus is the way to do justice. He's the one who taught the world to value people and to do justice. And so we need to, in the church, we need to quit dragging in this counterfeit form of justice and just start living what Jesus taught us to do so that we really are just and create justice in the world. It was people who believed in Jesus who abolished slavery. It was people who believed in Jesus who believed that things should, that culture should change and government should change and tyranny should change. And that's why the world changed after Christianity came into the world and we had a very different turn of events in history. Jesus is the way to do things and to do them right. So in other words, he's the way to do life. And if you are living life, which you are living a life, he's the way you should be doing that. That's what he means when he says, I'm the way. Here's the problem. Too many believers have never considered Jesus to be relevant to how they live their everyday life are to the many issues facing our various cultures. In fact, Jesus is often relegated to segmented spheres of life, mentally labeled something like my spiritual life or religion or what I have to believe to get to heaven, etc., etc., etc. These spheres are usually walled off mentally, spiritually, and practically from the realities of real living. In other words, it's okay to have Jesus on Sunday. It's okay to have Jesus when you got an emergency and you think you need a little spiritual, supernatural help. But otherwise, we don't <clears throat> bring Jesus into it because he really doesn't have much to say about our day-to-day -day lives. He wouldn't understand all that. We just don't bring Jesus into it. Now, nobody has really formulated that and stated that probably, but too many people are living that, and they shouldn't be. Because Jesus, when he says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the way for you to live every aspect of your life. I will show you how to live. I will show you how to respond. I will show you how to deal with wicked people. I will show you how to forgive your enemies. I will show you the way to live. So we must learn that we cannot sideline Jesus. The idea that we as his disciples should be so close to him. 24-7, that we are seeking with the help of his spirit and power to be increasingly like him in how we act and respond in all the categories of our life has somehow gotten lost in the pursuit of an easy Jesus gospel. And if you think Jesus is just a button you push to solve all your problems and you're expecting, you know, some kind of easy couch potato spiritual life, I've got news for you. That's not reality. So most Christians leave Jesus out of it. As to their daily lives, are people who call themselves Christians anyway. Out of their daily lives of relationships, or out of how they do business, money management, social issues, responses, and so on. But we should be bringing Jesus to the very center of all those things in our life. Somewhere along the line, we got the idea that J Jesus has nothing to say or to contribute to these day-to-day -day concerns of living. It's almost as if it looks something like this. We got a little closet... We hang the sign Jesus on there, and it's got a little sign over it that says Sundays and emergencies only. And we kind of keep Jesus, so to speak, in that closet. And, you know, we don't go to that closet unless we really need him. So if I decide I'm going to go to church on Sunday, of course, I need to open the Jesus closet. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll do that. Or if I've got an emergency and I need a little supernatural help, I'll run to the Jesus closet. But otherwise, Jesus, you stay in there, and I'll take care of the rest of life. That is tragic. Because that's simply not how you understand that Jesus is the way. And so we get this idea he's only relevant 
when I, when I want him for something. This is not at all what Jesus had in mind when he invites us to become his disciples and be in the way with him, to follow him and do what he does and do it the way he does it. To be in life with him, responding and acting as we see he, he does, and as he directs us to respond and act in every situation. In the sense of true meaning of his call to us, Jesus constantly is looking back, and I think he's a- asking this question. Is anyone in the way with me? Is anyone actually following me and imitating me and living life the way I'm living life? Because I came to show you how to live. I am the way to live life. So to bring us again to our question for today, where are you? It has to do with our identity within the way of our calling. Are you in the way with Jesus as regards the whole of your life? For Jesus made it abundantly clear, as we have learned, he will accept no half-hearted commitments and allegiances to him. It's all or nothing. Now, I want you to listen again. When it says, as we read here in Luke chapter 14, listen to his demands regarding his calling to each of us. And we've been through this every week. And it is kind of interesting. On my notes, it says 14. Up there, it says 4. So somehow I goofed on the PowerPoint, but that's supposed to be 14, not 4. If you look in chapter 4, you won't find this passage, okay? So it's chapter 14. Jesus says, if you come to me to be my disciple, by comparison, remember, and I put in this phrase to help us with the context of how they spoke back then, in comparison to your love for me, you must hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And any of you who does not give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Three times we pointed out, Jesus said in this passage, you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to fulfill the antecedent. And what's the antecedent? Well, first of all, I've got to be first in your loves. This week, as many of you know, we had a a combined memorial service for Frances Patton and Sharon, her daughter, Sharon uh, Russell. And David and Janet and Gavin and Ethan were here because, you know, they're part of the family. And, of course, we're, we're part of that family now because David married my daughter. And so, you know, that's how it works. And we were talking about the legacy and being together. We had four, and with Sam and Dee here and everything, we had four generations together. We was looking at it, just kind of an interesting thing. But the legacy of faith that comes down through there. And I was looking at Gavin, who just got married and married a wonderful Christian young lady. And Ethan, I remember one night, Ethan and I had a little talk. He was up late, and so I sat up late and just really because I want to talk. They're on, still on Rocky Mountain time. So anyway, we were sitting, and so he's getting, you know, he's 17 now. He's starting to think about dating, and he's, you know, and I just talked to him. I said, you know, keep the legacy going, son. Find you a, a girl who loves Jesus, because if you don't, it's going to mess up your life, because that's what you're committed to, and that's what you know you should be committed to. Don't worry, Papa, that's what I'm going to do. Just like Gavin did. I know. You, you, keep it, you keep it straight. We want the legacy to keep going, don't we? But here's what's interesting. All this week I've been thinking as I've been looking at them, and I wish Ryan and Colleen and the, my two grand, little grandkids could have been here, but they weren't able to get down for the weekend. But the point is, is that I would lay down my life for any one of them. And many of you have people you love so much that if it were necessary, you'd lay your life down for them. And, and I would do it without even a question, if it had to be done. No question about it. I'd lay my life down. I love them. But I've got news for you. Jesus said, even though you love them that much, in comparison, your love for me has to look so much greater that that love looks like hatred. Now, I can tell you right now that many of us would say, oh, I'd die for my son or my daughter. I'd die for my mom or dad. I'd die for any. But how many of you would die for Jesus? Well, let's not start talk, getting radical about faith and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's kind of that radical stuff. No, that's Christianity. That's your Bible. 
You see, when they were crucifying Peter upside down and cutting Paul's head off, it wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't something hypothetical. It was reality. And Jesus says, you got to love me enough that you would be willing to lay everything down for me. And then he goes on to say that. If you're not willing to carry your cross, die to that old life so I can resurrect you to a new life, you can't be my disciple because that's what it's all about, ceasing to be what you are and becoming what I want to make you. And then, and any of you who does not give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Now, I've given it to you every week, but I'm going to keep putting it up here. My dad, one of my dad's favorite sayings. Jesus requires just one thing of everybody, everything. And that is so important. But I reminded you last week, and I want to say it again. There's a reason for that. Jesus requires everything of us because he longs to give everything to us. And he wishes to give it to us in immortal form. And he cannot give us anything immortal except on the other side of his tomb where resurrection indestructible life is and we have to embrace his cross die to what we are and in faith and trust in him are carried through and die to that old life and we are resurrected to a new life and there we have turned loose of an old life that would soon be moldy and dead and he gives us an eternal life that will never pass away and that's why he wants us to give him everything so he can give us everything immortally so his requirement is because he loves us and so we must learn to trust because without trust we won't understand what Jesus is up to and this was Jesus' point when he warned us that unless we give up our life by taking up our cross and following him and imitating him we're going to lose everything we're going to lose our life we'll lose it all in other words he cannot as I told you last week remake what we do not give him to him completely because nothing in us that has not died in Christ can be resurrected in Christ. So it's all or nothing. And I'll give it to you again. We learned last week that there is a Christian worldview that makes us understand how Jesus used death to defeat death. And how we embrace death to conquer death in him. And that's the context of much of Lewis's famous statements that he put into some of his allegorical works when he said, the cure of death is dying. And here we understand as Christian, what he's saying is, when you die with Jesus, that's the cure for death because you're going to live again. You can only kill a Christian temporarily because they're going to come back. You can't keep a Christian down. Whoever lives and believes in me, even though they were dead, yet shall they live again, said Jesus. And because I live, you're going to live also. And he does live, so we're going to live also. It's just that simple. And of course, die before you die, said Lewis, there's no chance after. Very important that you embrace your death with Jesus because you can't do it after you're dead and gone. This is why we must be found in the way with Jesus. This is where we must be. Now, Jesus came into a world with lots of ways, lots of paths already in it. You know, there were already different religions saying, oh, this is the way, follow this. There were thousands of gods and goddesses saying, oh, this is the way, follow this. There were philosophies galore, follow this, this is the way. You know, if you want to be the Stoic or Epicurean or whatever it is, this is the way. And Jesus didn't follow any of those ways. Jesus came into this world with all these different ways in it, and he does not adopt any of them. Now, Jesus knows well what the writer of Proverbs expressed many years earlier. In Proverbs 14, he also repeated in chapter 16, he said this, There is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it is a way that leads to death. In other words, you end up in the dumpster eternally. It will destroy you. It seems right, feels right. And I get so tired of hearing people saying, well, if it feels right, it must be right. No, a lot of things feel right that aren't right and will ultimately destroy you. It's as if we need a word picture for this, and it's as if Jesus 
takes out his machete of wisdom in the jungles and entanglements of this world and cuts new paths through the jungles of this world. Jesus doesn't follow anyone else's paths. Some of his new ways are given to us and he, he gives it to the, his disciples right up front, right after he calls them. You may recall that in Matthew chapter 4, he calls his first disciples. And then in Matthew chapter 5, just after he calls them, he sets them down and he preaches that great message which covers chapter 5, 6, and 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is saying is, gentlemen, you're going to follow me. You're going to be in the way with me. This is my way. This is how you have to live to be my disciple. And so right up front... Jesus takes out his machete and starts cutting a whole new way. For example, in that message, the old way was this. Love your friends, hate your enemies. Jesus said, you've heard that said. You've been taught that even by some of your, you know, your pharisaical teachers. He says, but I say to you. And when Jesus says that, this is God speaking, by the way. This is Jesus taking out his machete of wisdom and saying, swish, 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 swish. I'm cutting a new way. Follow me. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who misuse you and hate you and despise you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait a minute. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus says, this is my way and it works. Trust me. Follow me. It works. Why would I do that? Well, Jesus says, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. You see, he gives an illustration. He says, your Father in heaven lets the sun shine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He says, you want to be his children? You're going to have to be just like him. You've got to love those who don't love you, and you even though you, it's easy to love those who do, but you've got to love those who don't love you. You've got to learn to turn the other cheek. You've got to learn to go the second mile. Give the second garment. You've got to learn to be something, someone who can transcend the circumstances of life instead of always being conquered by them and controlled by them. There's too many Christians running around sucking their thumbs today complaining instead of being overcomers. And we have the power to be overcomers. And we should be. And so Jesus tells them right up front, it's a new way, boys. And aren't you, I'm going to ask you a question just in this context. Aren't you glad God loved his enemies? Aren't you glad he lets the sun shine on the evil and the good and send rain on the just and the unjust? You know why, don't you? Because the Bible tells you right up front that when you came into this world, you had a nature that is hostile to God and it made you the enemy of God right from the beginning. Because you are a member of this world system when you come into this world. And Scripture makes it plain that you were God's enemy. We all started out as friends of the world in our hearts and in our pride and our self-centeredness and our, our mild narcissism or whatever it is. But God loved us anyway. Remember Paul saying, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still shaking our fist in God's face, while we were still hostile, while we were still fearful of God and still running from Him, God moved toward us and loved us in Christ. He didn't ask our permission, he just did it. And then he offers it to us and we can say yes or no. So we started out as enemies of God and he loved us so that we could become his children. James warned the Christians of his day who were trying to, they were vacillating between being faithful to Jesus and going back and trying to be a part of the world system. And remember when the Bible uses the concept of the world, it's not talking about the earth, it's talking about the world system. And James said this to them in James 4, 4, he says, you adulterous people. And here again, he's talking about spiritual adultery because they were fiddling around. It's like the Israelites saying they're going to serve Yahweh. And then they go over here and they, they, try to get involved in Baal worship. Well, that was a kind of a spiritual adultery. They were married to Yahweh and they go over here and they whore around with Baal. And James is saying the same thing. You've committed yourself to Jesus, but he says, you adulterous people, don't you know the friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The world hates God. Satan hates God. He's the prince 
of this world. He is the prince and the power of the air. And if you try to compromise with evil, you will end up hostile to God. So we are to fall in behind Jesus and follow his way and take up his identity and live life as he lives life. So, for example, we forgive our enemies because we want to be like him because it's no longer about us. It's about being like Jesus. It's about being like him. He is the normal human. We need to be like him to escape our subnormal life and get a new life. And Jesus looks over his shoulder and asks, is anyone willing to follow me? Is anyone in the way with me? And so I'm going to ask you that question this morning. Are you in the way with Jesus? Are you following him? Are you doing life his way? Or are you doing it the way of the world? You know, today people in the world are filled with fear and panicked about a lot of things. But people who put their trust in Jesus are able to have faith because they know he's still in charge and still sitting on the throne and nobody's pushed him off and nobody's going to. He's still the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And yes, we're going to go through some tough times, but hey, it's okay. Our Savior is still in charge. Are you in the way with Jesus? You see, Jesus was continually cutting new paths through the jungle of this world. Let me remind you of a story. You remember the story of the woman at the well in Sychar? <laughs> That story starts out with Jesus saying this. He said, he said to his disciples, I must go through Samaria. Now, we read that and we just keep going. We don't, it doesn't really say anything to us. You should have seen the faces of the disciples when he said that. You must go through Samaria? No rabbi worth his Torah went through Samaria. In fact, really good rabbis went out of their way and was willing to travel long distances to keep from going through Samaria where those half-breed dogs lived that Jews despised. It was a matter of prejudice and pride. And so they would actually, when they got, had to go through Samaria on the journey, instead they would cross the Jordan River, which was hard, go down the other side of the Jordan River around Samaria, and then cross the Jordan River again, just so they didn't defile themselves with those dirty Samaritans. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I must go through Samaria. And they're like, what? Why would you do that? No good rabbi goes through Samaria. Well, Jesus knew he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a revival that needed to happen at Sychar, and he was going to initiate it. But I also think the disciples needed to go through Samaria to learn that Jesus puts people first, and it doesn't matter where they come from, you've got to learn to put them first and love them. Because when you do, you can change the world. Well, you know how it unfolds. They get to Sychar in Samaria. And uh, the story goes that Jesus was tired and hungry. And so there's a well outside of Sychar. And it's kind of like, okay, Jesus, to keep you from getting contaminated, we're going to leave you at the well here. This is Jacob's well. At midday, nobody comes to the well. It's hot. Nobody comes out here. You'll be... You know, just sit here. There's probably a little shade there for him. You just sit here. We'll go into the village and risk all that. We'll find something to eat. We'll come back out. We'll have a picnic, and then we can go on our way. And hopefully, we won't get contaminated by any of these Samaritans. That was the disciples' attitude. Well, you know, they leave and go into town, and Jesus is sitting at the well. And guess what? Here comes a woman to the well. Now, this is a problem on several levels if you understand the culture of that day. A rabbi could not be seen in the presence of a woman who was not his wife. So if a woman came walking toward him, he would walk away across to the other side of the street, let her pass, and would hold his back to her while she passed, and then he would continue on his way because it would ruin his reputation to be talked to her in any way or to communicate with her in any way. And that went double for a woman of disrepute. Guess what kind of woman comes to the well? (laughs) Yeah. 
And so what she would expect, seeing a Jew sitting at the well, and that would be an unusual sight because there wasn't very many Jews came through there. She's thinking, oh, okay, it'll be the usual treatment. Now, why is she coming in the middle of the day? She is not only a woman of disrepute. She is not only part of a people that the Jews called dogs. She is among her own people, someone called a dog. They reject her. They ridicule her. And she doesn't come in the morning with the other ladies because she doesn't want all the comments and stares and glares. So she waits till midday when she knows nobody will be out there to go get her water. Because she doesn't want all the criticism. So she shows up at midday, but there's this really sticky situation. There's a Jewish rabbi sitting there. And she's waiting for him to get up and do the usual thing, walk about 50 yards away and put his back to her until she gets through. And then when she's through, he'll come back and get back in the shade. But Jesus doesn't move. And she comes up and it's kind of awkward. And then Jesus breaks the silence and says, ma'am, would you be willing to give me a drink of water? And now she's like, she says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans don't have anything to do with you. You can't drink out of my defiled container here. You want me to give you water? And Jesus in his masterful way uses it as a great segue, doesn't he? He says, woman, and that was not a label of contempt. That was a, a courteous way to address one. He said, woman, if you knew who it is who's speaking to you, you would ask him for water and he would give you eternal water that would satisfy your thirst forever. You'd never be thirsty again. She doesn't really quite get it. She's not, well, where would you get this water? You don't have anything to, the well is deep. You don't have anything to dip with. Jesus says, no, the water I would give you would become like an artesian well springing up inside you to eternal life. You'll never thirst again. And finally she says, well, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come here to draw. And Jesus says, well, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And then he, with his omniscience as God, says, yeah, I guess you spoke rightly because you've had five husbands. And now the guy you're sleeping with is not your husband. And she's like, oh, how do you know that? I, and then she says, I discern that you are a prophet of some kind. <laughs> and then she tries to change the subject. She wants to discuss religion. Well, we Samaritans think you should worship here on this mountain. You Jews say we should worship in the mountain in Jerusalem. Which one should it be? And Jesus says, forget it, lady. It's neither one of those. Because the Father is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what will happen. And you will not be worshiping on either one of these mountains when it's all said and done. And then he makes it clear to her. She says, well, I know when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And this is something that should astound you. Here is a Samaritan, disreputable woman who a rabbi shouldn't even be seen with. And it's the first person that Jesus ever opens his mouth and says, I'm the Messiah. He says, the one talking to you, that's who I am. I'm the Messiah. And her eyes get as big as silver dollars. No wonder he can tell me everything I ever did. No wonder he knows everything about me. And the disciples start coming back and they see Jesus talking with a woman and they are upset. Does he not know what he's doing? This is going to ruin his reputation and we're with him and it'll ruin our reputation. And they're just kind of like, what's he doing talking to a woman? But nobody's dared to ask him anything. There's a little you know, passive aggressive thing going on here. But the disciples really are upset about this. And about time they come, there's this strange evangelist in the person of this woman getting ready to go run back into town and tell everybody what just happened at the well, which they don't want anybody to know about. And the disciples say, well, Jesus, uh, have something to eat. We found something to eat. And Jesus says, I'm not hungry now. I've got food you don't know anything about. And they go, did somebody bring you something to eat? What's, what's going on? Jesus says, don't you get it? 
People are more important to me than the picnic. They're into their picnic. Jesus is into people. And they just don't get it. It goes right over their head. Duh. And pretty soon the whole town is coming out to see Jesus. And they invite him to come in. And they have a revival in Sychar. Because this woman went into town and said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And when it's all said and done, two days later, they say to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, but we have heard him for ourselves. We know this man is the Messiah. They had a revival in Sychar. That's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. But what was Jesus doing? Can you hear his machete of wisdom, swish, 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 cutting new pathways through the jungle of our world and saying, no, this way, put people first. I don't care where they come from or what their ethnic background, God loves them and you love them too. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he challenges us with. Are you in the way with Jesus? Let me ask you a question. What have you risked to love others? What does it cost you? Anything? That's what Jesus would ask us. What have you been willing to put on the line to love others? What does it cost you? You know, if we're not careful, we can be like the disciples who are into their picnic, but not into people. You know, in a church, we fellowship together, and we should. We're, in fact, we're ordered to do that. We, we love to get together and have barbecues and eat and do all kinds of things, and that's wonderful, and, and we're going to do lots of that and keep doing all that because the Bible says that's important. But it also makes it clear that we must not forget our mission in that because church isn't just about us fellowshipping with each other. It's about us loving each other so that we can do the mission of bringing the kingdom to earth by loving those who need to be loved into the kingdom. We've still got to be about seeing lives transformed. And our greatest evangelistic tool is how we love Jesus and how we love each other. And we see this again like in Luke 12. I'll give you one more example. In Luke 12, 13 through 15, we have a whole series of things that happen. By this time, Jesus has become what we would call a famous rabbi. He's the magnet rabbi. Again, tens of thousands of people are showing up, following him and trying to listen to his teaching and, and have him, you know, heal them. He, he's the kind of rabbi now that you would go up to him and ask him to sign your Torah. Oh, can I get your signature on my, my Torah here? <laughs> if you have one. Jesus is a famous rabbi. And in one of the gatherings, some guy catches Jesus' eye and he shouts out, Master! Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Now, if you get your chance to go one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, this is probably not what you want to say. Because the way Jesus responds to this probably didn't make this guy's day. Jesus turned it into a teaching opportunity and began teaching about the dangers of all kinds of greed and covetousness, which is what he was accusing the guy of. And the word he uses for greed or covetousness is, is pleonexias in the Greek, and it's a word which means just always wanting more and more and more and more. There's never enough. And Jesus begins to talk about that says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Always wanting more. It's like a spiritual drug that just, you just can't get enough. You just need more and it's making you sicker and sicker and sicker. It's the spirit of discontentment and it's absolutely rampant in our age today. People think they got to have more of everything. It's a spiritual drug of creating constant cravings that are never satisfied. You know, you know the feeling. You got that new 30-foot boat you want, and there's nothing wrong with that. And you got it in the slip, and you're polishing it up so it shines like a diamond and, and pulls your neighbor with his new 40-foot boat with a special upgrade package. And suddenly it's like, oh, man, yeah, yeah now he's showing me up. Now you want the 50-foot boat with the upgrade package, you know. 
And it's just on and on it goes, you know. More and more and more and more. That's greed. That's discontentment. In fact, Jesus is trying to say your life, your identity doesn't consist of the things you possess. In fact, he's so emphatic about this. Look at how he addresses it in this passage. He says, watch out. That's what you say when somebody's about to step on a rattlesnake. Watch out. He's saying, this is dangerous. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist of the abundance of their possessions. Wow. In other words, Jesus is saying, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. Because that's not what your life consists of. And then Jesus right immediately launches into a story about the rich fool. I won't take time to relate that whole story. But I just remind you of what it was about. Remember, it was about a farmer whose barns were already full. And he had a bumper crop coming. It, it, it bore a hundredfold. He had more than he could figure. He didn't know what to do with it all. And he said, you know, I tell you what. He thought it over. He thought, now here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'll store all this stuff away. And then I'm going to retire and party hardy for the rest of my life. That was his solution. I'm going to spend it all on me. And I'm going to party because I got enough. I am wealthy. I am rich. I can go play golf every day. I can go to the nightclubs every night. I can just have a blast spending it all on me because I am set. And Jesus said, God came to that man and said, you fool, tonight your life is going to be required of you. And then who's going to get all this stuff you've stored up for yourself? You idiot. You never even stopped to think. And what Jesus was saying, he should have gone from greed to generosity. God is giving me more than I need. Instead of trying to store it all up and find some way to spend it on myself, I should have been looking around to see how I could help others. But oh no, that isn't how greed thinks. You think this farmer thought that way? Oh no, no, no. Greed goes, I got, it's mine. I got to find some way to spend it on me. So Jesus begins to te teach, instead, we need to seek the kingdom first. Learn to live in generosity. Learn to give things away so that we can help others. And this is kind of what he says, and, and we're still in Luke 12 here. He says, but seek his kingdom, talking about God's kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Don't go running after them. God will give them to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then here's some outrageous advice from the Messiah. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide persons for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In other words, God has given you the kingdom so you can afford to be generous. Because you can't outgive God. And the more you give out of love, the more he's going to give out of love. Because you just, I just dare you. You can't outgive God. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. And Jesus promised that. So can you hear Jesus' machete of wisdom? Just cutting new paths right through the whole way we live life in this world. Taking us off the broad way of greed of more and more for me and calling us to follow him into a new path of generosity and servanthood. We have a generous God. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, but he's also omnigenerous. And Jesus is looking around and asking, is anyone in the way with me? Is anyone following is anyone so taken with me they want to be like their rabbi and do life the way I do life? And so we're going to kind of end with that question hanging in the air. Because it's here where we come full circle to the question, is following Jesus easy? And this is what I want you to get a hold of as we finish. Is following Jesus easy? He's done it all for us. But then he says, it's going to cost you everything to be my disciple. So is following Jesus easy? Well, if you are taken with your master, if you really love him and want to be like him, the answer is yes. 
because love makes many things otherwise hard and easy delight. Did you know that? Let me tell you a story, a true story to drive that home. Many years ago, there was a lady, a Christian lady, who had married a gentleman who I, I think had some military background, but he eventually became hostile toward God and the church and wanted nothing to do with it, and he made her life a living hell. He was very, very rigid about everything. And he wanted everything done a certain way, and she was the one who was to serve him and the household. And so he wanted the house kept spotless. He wanted his meals cooked a certain way and served at a certain time. He, when he left for work every day, he made long lists of what she was to accomplish that day. And most of those things were things that he wanted done for his comfort. And he was demanding, and he was cruel, and he was ungrateful. For example, if she served something and it was not made to his liking, he was known to pick up the plate, throw it in the floor, and tell her to go make something decent. And she found her life almost unbearable living with this man. But she couldn't see any way out. And then one day, he dropped dead in the floor of a massive heart attack. And suddenly she was a widow. Well, she did the honorable thing. She had a barrel for him. She had him honored, and, you know. And a year after his death, she realized that she was so much more happy not living under this tyrannical, ungrateful, cruel person. A couple more years go by, and finally in her church, she met a man who had also been whittled. His wife had died, and they began to get closer and they finally fell in love and they decided they were going to get married and they did. But he was so much different than her first husband. He was grateful. He was always uplifting and not pushing down. He was not demanding. In fact, if he had time away from work, he would just say, how can I pitch in and help around the house? He was always grateful for everything she did for him. One day he was at the office working and she was just kind of cleaning up the house and just kind of singing through and thinking about, they've been married for five years now. She's just thinking about how happy she was with this guy. Life is so much better because I live with a man who really loves me and really is grateful for everything I do. And she was cleaning out a drawer and she was, you know, kind of sorting stuff out. And she picked up a folded piece of paper, wondering what it was. She opens it up and guess what it was? It was one of those uh, old to-do lists from her first husband. And she started reading down that to-do list. You got to do this, 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 this. And she's reading down it and remembering how unhappy and how just ungrateful he was for everything. And, and she's just kind of reliving it and thinking, oh, this is awful. I remember all this. But she got to the bottom of that list and then she, something hit her and she went, wait a minute, and she read back over the list again. And then she started laughing. She goes, I can't believe it. I'm doing every one of these things for my present husband, and he hasn't asked me to do any of it. But I do it for him because I love him, and it's a delight to do it, and I'm having a blast doing it. What has changed? Love. Love changes everything. It makes things that were once hard a delight. And if you're in love with Jesus, yeah, it's easy to follow him because you just want to be with him. You want to do whatever he says because you trust him. But if you're in love with something else, you're hanging on to something else, yeah, you're going to find it difficult to follow Jesus. It'll be hard. You remember how Matthew put it this way? Remember in that passage? They left their nets immediately and followed him. And then when he gets to John and James, it says, and they left their nets and their father Zebedee immediately and followed him. Why did Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, twice use that word which means immediately without delay? He could have just said, and they followed him. But both times he emphasizes it was immediate. And he always mentions that they left their nets, the thing that they clung to that gave them life and support and livelihood. 
And he says they, they turned loose of that and they followed Jesus. And I think that the Scriptures is trying to get something through to us that in life, you've got to learn to turn loose of your nets. You know, we could ask, what's all this net talk about? And I think the answer is really simple. You can't go anywhere with Jesus if you're hanging on to the nets. If they kept saying, well, I want to follow you, but I don't want to turn loose my nets. This is what supports me. This is what I got to have. And Jesus says, no, come follow me. I'll take care of that. All that other stuff be added to you. Put my kingdom first. The rest of that will be given to you as well. And the world has lots of nets. The world has lots of nets. And you can't go anywhere with Jesus if you're hanging on to the nets. How do we find, define the nets in this context? Well, it's anything that you are hanging on to that stops you from becoming a devoted full-time follower of Jesus. That may not be your job. That may be something God called you to do. It may not be your business. That may be something God called you to do. The point is that may not be your net, but there may be something you're hanging on to. And God says, turn loose of that and come follow me immediately. And you're saying, no, I can't turn loose of that. This is my security. You got your little security blanket or you got your little security net. And Jesus says, no, turn loose of it and come follow me. And anything you're hanging on to that keeps you from being a devoted, full-time follower of Jesus, not a Sunday only, not a Jesus in the closet during the week, bring him out on Sunday or bring him out on emergencies, but full-time follower of Jesus, that's your net and that's what you need to turn loose of immediately. How would you fill in this blank? If I follow Jesus, I will have to turn loose of. How would you fill that in? I hope you would say, I don't have to turn loose of anything because I've turned loose of all of it just so I can follow him. And there's a lot of you here that have done that. And I thank God for a church full of people like that. But I've got news for you. Some of you may find yourself going, mm -hmm. yeah, I know what my net is. I just can't quite turn loose of that. I want to follow you, Jesus, but, and that's what gets us in trouble. But, and then we hang on to our net. What nets do you need to turn loose of and trust Jesus? How would you fill in that blank? What are the nets in your life? Once you drop the nets, following is easy. And you will become like your rabbi. You will fall in love with him. By the way, keeping nets out of your life is the key to discipleship. Satan will offer you more and more nets continually. He wants to entangle you in so many nets you can't go anywhere. So activate your identity as a follower of Jesus by dropping your nets. And say anything that gets in the way of me following Jesus and living his way, it's out of my life. It may be legitimate, but if it's in the way of me following Jesus, it goes. I'm turning loose of that net. What nets do you need to drop today? Let's pray. Father, this world is really good at handing us nets. And we are often such a frightened, insecure people that we cling to all kinds of things thinking it's going to give us security and it doesn't. It just messes things up. The only security there is is just when we turn loose of everything and cling to you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so Lord Jesus, I pray for us, your people today, in this world of confusion and chaos and anger and vitriol and fear and paranoia and people frightened of everything and anything and everything, you know, we got new epidemics now. And, and, and yes, Lord, some of these things we need to be, you know, serious about and think about. But Lord, help us to remember that nothing should get in the way of you being Lord of our life. And if we need to turn loose some nets this morning, help us to do that. And let me just say to any of you this morning, God may be putting his finger on a net in your life and saying, why don't you just untangle your fingers from that and just come follow me. I'll teach you what your life is about. I'll tell you who you really are. 
Lord Jesus, that's what we want. Thank you for New Hope. Thank you for the wonderful people of this fellowship and so many who have just left everything to follow you. But help us all to do that so that we can truly pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, right here in my life as it is in heaven. And so we really do follow your ways as you take out your machete of wisdom and cut new paths for us to follow that will astound the world because we're living like you, not like the world. Thank you that we have the power to do that by your spirit which you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.